In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I want to welcome you to our series, uh, Leading Together. I want to thank Robbie for that introduction, just giving us a picture of, of how our church leadership kind of landed in this place. And for the next five weeks, we are diving into the topic of women, men, and authority, leadership in the church. And you might be here thinking, I haven't thought much about this topic. And some of you are thinking, I think of pretty much nothing else but this topic. I'm pretty passionate about this topic. So I know that some are excited about these next five weeks, and some of you are like, why would we spend more than one week on this issue? Why five? That is way too long. And so, yay, we're all here together. We're all on different pages, but we're all in the room here as one family. And some of you might be legitimate. You're like, okay, seriously, but why are we doing this series? Redeemer Church in New York City, uh, the church that Tim Keller planted, explains why it's important to have these kind of conversations and specifically this conversation today. They write this, quote, in the latter decades of the 20th century, we witnessed a revolution in how women and their roles were viewed. It is not necessary to document the history or scope of this cultural conversation. It is sufficient to recognize that it calls for a reassessment of how women relate to every cultural institution, marriage, family, the public sphere, and vocation. It is understandable that this conversation should also intersect with both the beliefs and practices of the church. So, uh, as some of you know who have attended our church for a while, we at North Langley uh, try not to shy away from hard topics. We've tried to tackle some pretty deep topics in the past number of years that really need to be addressed in our day. So, political polarization, we looked at that in our Shalom series. We've tackled issues on abortion, medical assistance in dying, living in the digital age, living with mental illness. We've wrestled with a biblical vision for identity, gender, and sexuality. So when it comes to the topic of women in church leadership, we need to dive in because it matters. It matters. We should not be afraid to deal with what the Bible says when it comes to this issue. And for those of you who are like brand new, you're like, I'm brand new to this conversation. Um, you, you, you need to know that for many years, there have been two pretty big camps uh, in the church that have come to different understandings about what the Bible says about women and men and leadership and authority in the church. And the unresolved question in the church, and when I say the church, I don't just mean our church, I mean the global church. The unresolved question has been, are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? Are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? This is a, this is a massive question. And as many of you know, Christians answer this question differently. One group, one group of churches around the world will read the Bible and see God giving, the, God giving women the green light to pastor, to preach, to teach, to lead with authority in any leadership role in the church. No restrictions, total equality. And in the English-speaking world, this has come to be known as the egalitarian position. 
So that might be you, right? The egalitarian position. Another group of churches around the world see God's gifts given to women, that God does give gifts to women, but they are to exercise those gifts only under the authority of male leadership. This position has been called the complementarian position. The idea, that, the idea here is that men and women complement each other in ministry, but really men have the authority in the church or the final authority in the church. So for example, if it, in the complementarian position, if a church's highest leadership position is the lead pastor, that person should be a male. If, uh, if the highest leadership position in the church is a group of elders, then those elders should be male. Now, I believe that the words egalitarian and complementarian are not great. I don't love them. Uh, yeah, I don't like them. They are not words found in the Bible, and they are pretty new words in the history of the church. And neither word fully describes the position accurately, I don't think. And so I don't really like these words. But here's the deal. While these terms aren't great, I feel like I need to use them in the next five weeks since they are the popular words today in the church that generally help to describe these two positions surrounding the issue of women in leadership in the church. Now, have I already confused everyone? Who's confused already? <laughs> Anyone? Okay, hopefully we're doing all right. If, I just wanna let you know, every week of this series, for five weeks, we are going to have uh, an After Sunday podcast where Pastor Corey, who leads worship, and I will sit down and work through some further questions that weren't able to make it in the sermon series. And so if you have questions, feel free to send some to us or um, we will, uh, or just feel free to tune in and listen to that. But here's the deal. Today, the question is not, are women created equal with men in God's eyes? Or are they equal recipients of grace and salvation along with men? Or are women equally loved by God? Or do men and women equally receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Or are both men and women equally called to ministry? Um, those can all be answered with a resounding yes. Yes, absolutely. The very specific question we're asking in the series is simply this. Are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women. And here at North Langley, we say, yes, yes. Yes, women and men are both called to serve together in primary positions of leadership in the church, which are the positions of pastor and elder. This is why we've called this series Leading Together, Women, women and Men Leading Side by Side in the church. And I will spend the next five weeks unpacking the scriptures so that hopefully you can be convinced of that as well. All right. Who's warm? Is anyone feeling warm? Okay. Can we get the air conditioner to turn on? Any of the ushers, if you're able to look into that? It was, it's probably just me because I'm coming with this topic here. But anyway, we'll, we'll get a little... Some of you are like, I'm already freezing. But anyway, we got to bring the temperature down here in the room. Okay. Um, so speaking of uh, temperature, <laughs> as some of us in the room are starting to feel nervous, right? And we're starting to feel some things um, in the room. Some of you who are complementarians, you're probably saying something like this deep down. I'm worried. 
I'm worried. I'm really worried that North Langley is becoming, you know, one of those progressive churches that waters down the Bible and that isn't willing to stand for truth, for biblical truth today. You know, God has given clarity about gender roles, and I can't believe my home church is walking away from those. And you're feeling that deep down. Some of you egalitarians are saying, where am I? I can't believe we're even having this conversation in 2023. Is this some kind of weird dream, right? Is this even debatable? Of course women can lead alongside men, right? Am I trapped in some kind of time warp, right? Some of you might be feeling that. I know especially I've chatted with some of the younger generation. They're like, I didn't even know that our church, right? It's like, where are we? And some of you, third category, are like, you're new to Jesus. You're brand new to Jesus, and you're thinking, ah, I was wondering when things were going to get weird, <laughs> right? <laughs> Man, I was doing good for a while. I was, they were talking about Jesus, and it was great, and then this Sunday happened, right? The weird just dropped. So listen, we're carrying a lot in the room today right? A lot of emotions. And, you know, some of us have been worried about the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of marriage in our culture, the breakdown of, of, all, of all of these God-given gifts, right? And then some of us have been hurt by harmful patriarchy and the way in which churches have hurt women. Man, we've just got all kinds of stuff swirling in our own hearts, swirling around the room right now, and a lot of these emotions are important. We need to listen to them and, and just and come to the Lord and friends and just say, what's going on inside of me? I'm feeling some pretty strong emotions around this topic. But I, wanna, I want us to be careful that some of those emotions don't keep us from the good conversations that we're going to have amongst each other in our life groups, in our small groups in the next five weeks. I hope that whatever it is that's swirling around in your own heart, it won't keep you from being able to have loving dialogue with someone who thinks differently here in the church. So can I ask us as a church to lean into this difficult conversation with truth and love, with truth and love, the truth of the scriptures and the love of Jesus? Because I believe that even though we disagree on this issue, we can still worship together. We can still be a family of faith. I want to offer a quick perspective that might be helpful. Uh, I read a really helpful book along with the elders and pastors of our church called Two Views on Women in Ministry. Uh, four scholars, they're four, uh, you know, PhD, New Testament professors at four different Christian universities. Their names are Linda Belleville, Craig Blomberg, Craig Keener, and Tom Schreiner. They wrote a book together where they disagreed. Two of them were complementarians and two were egalitarians. Right? And they, they had a conversation in this book. It's really helpful if any of you are interested in a real deep dive into the scriptures. But they co-wrote the following statement together. Guys, this is brilliant. Just listen to this. They wrote, quote, We believe one can build a credible case within the bounds of orthodoxy and a commitment to inerrancy for either one of the two major views we address in this volume, although all of us view our own positions on the matter as stronger and more compelling. Listen to that. Four bright minds, four professors who all love Jesus and are wicked smart. <laughs> they write a book and listen to their unity. We believe, all four of them, two complementarians, two egalitarians, we believe that one can build a credible case within the bounds of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, just the truth that glues the church together, right? 
So for the next five weeks, I'm going to present a vision for egalitarianism, for the full inclusion of women at every level of leadership and ministry here at the church, total equality. But I believe that many of you in the room, brothers and sisters, will come to a different conclusion, right? Even after these five weeks. But I hope we can still worship together and serve together in unity here at North Langley. I know that many of you who are complementarians are wondering if you can attend this church after this theological shift. But I would ask that you at least stay for the full five weeks. Would you do that? <laughs> would you stay for the full five weeks and, and just um, be open? And egalitarians as well, just all of us. We're all open, all praying, all open to what God would say to us. Bruce Waltke, um, former professor at Regent College, uh, and he is a complementarian, he says this about the question of women and men in church leadership. Quote, conscious of the division and strife created in the contemporary church by the issues of women's roles in the church, home, and society, I offer this study with an emphatic assertion that these issues are non-essentials for the unity of the church. Non-essentials. See, good, smart Christians who love the Bible and love Jesus have landed in different places. And the question we all need to be asking ourselves is, have we come to our position biblically? right? Or is it just an emotion we're feeling? Did, did we come to the position that we're in right now based on the scriptures? Have we studied the scriptures? At the center of this five-week journey, I hope, is going to be the truth of scripture. And I would love for everyone to pull out their Bible, um, to follow the truth. And like the Bereans in Acts 17, we want to study the truth and make sure that we're aligned with God's heart. In Acts 17, 11, we read this. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Look at them. They're examining the scriptures every day to see if what Paul had said was true. And that's what we want to do here at North Langley. We're apprenticed to Jesus, and we want to know his heart, his truth. So let's be good Bereans. Let's open up the Bible. So would you, right now, open up the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 this morning, and we're going to study it. And today, we are beginning right here in the first three chapters of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, just go to the first page. And we're going to just ask a very simple question. Here it is. In the book of Genesis, do we see God giving men authority over women. In the book of Genesis, do we see God giving, a th giving men authority over women? So in other words, the question is, do we see hierarchy in the book of Genesis? Do we see a hierarchy of men leading women in the book of Genesis? So simple enough, right? Simple enough question. So let's dive in. Genesis 1, starting in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All right, notice how beautiful this is. Humans are made in the image of God. And we talk a lot about this kind of thing at North Langley. We talk about the image of God, the imago Dei, that's in Latin, right? Male and female are both image bearers. They both reflect the image of God. 
Look at verse 28, though. Look at verse 28, and notice the word ruling. Do you see that word there? Ruling? Notice that the encouragement to rule is given to both male and female. To rule is a kingly function, and good rulership is good stewardship. So God is giving men and women the stewardship of the earth. Take care of the earth, right? Watch over it. Care for all creation. Rule it, right? Make decisions that are going to benefit the good of all creation. So God as king delegates his ruling to men and women. They're partners in ruling. Do you notice that, right? That's key before we keep going, right? It's a key, massive point. Taryn Williams, in his book, How God Sees Women, writes this, quote, Not just men, but women too, are given authority as God's vice regents, which is an aspect of our full humanity. It takes both men and women together to reflect the full image of God. This is the blessing of an alliance. Whatever may be unique about each gender biologically or psychologically, the point is that we each bring all of ourselves to all of the vocation God has for us as the human race. God does not set up a masculine rule as his standard and plan for humanity. No, male and female together bear the image of God. And I would add, and are called to co-rule. Co-rule, creation. Now, here's some pushback. Um, so, so, so on the complementarian side, the, the pushback is, well, here's the deal. Adam, we see in the creation story, Adam is clearly a leader because he was formed first. Right? So you, if, you, if, you know, we, we don't have time to go all the way back into it, but in the, in, the, in the order of creation, the sequence of different things that were created, Adam is actually created first. So does that not say that Adam has some kind of authority over Eve in the creation story? Well, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't believe that's true. Because I want you to notice something really interesting. And this is really important. To argue that Adam is a leader over Eve because he was made first in the, in the creation account uh, doesn't take into account the, the sequence of things that are created. Some of you who know the story will know that the very first thing that's created is light in Genesis 1, right? Light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God separates the waters and brings land, and then he starts creating plants, and then animals, and then Adam, and then Eve. Well, notice something, right? If the, if the first ones in the line of the created order are the most important, then you'd have to make some kind of argument that light is more important than plants, or that plants are more important than animals, or that light, plants, and animals are more important than Adam. Do you see where I'm going with this? And then you would have to, and so if you see the sequence of creation, you notice that things are moving from the lesser to the greater, right? From the lesser kind of light and the separation of waters to plants, to animals, to humankind. And so egalitarians could counter the argument and say, well, actually, if it's moving from the lesser to the greater, who gets, who gets made last? Eve. So she's, she's the climax. She's the, she's the best. She's the top of the pyramid, right? As it were. But egalitarians aren't arguing that. So I, I think it's really important to come humble here and to kind of say, hold on. <laughs> um, I don't think there's much to that argument that Adam was made first and then Eve because you, you know, that argument almost shoots itself in the foot. That's not in my notes, shooting self in foot. But anyway, uh, I, don't, I don't buy that argument myself. Bruce Waltke would disagree with me. He writes, quote, if God wanted a matriarchy, would God not have formed Eve first? 
Now, who am I to argue with Dr. Bruce Walke? But I need to point out that no egalitarian I know is arguing for a matriarchy, right? We believe in the complementarity, if I could use that word, in the complementarity of two genders, co-ruling creation. Two genders who complement one another and together co-rule creation. No patriarchy, no matriarchy, right? It's this, it's this leading together, right? Ruling together. That's what I see in the text. And the question is, as you're reading the text, what do you see? What are you seeing? Let's move to Genesis 2, starting in verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, I want you to focus on that little phrase, no suitable helper was found. You see that in verse 20? But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, when we see the word helper, I uh, just want to let you know, it's the Hebrew word ezer, ezer. Uh, turn to your neighbor and say ezer. That's a really important word. Hold on to that. Um, because when we think of helper, we think of the book, The Help. Do you remember the book, The Help, or the movie, The Help, right? We think, oh, we know what that is. That's like a maid, right? So it's the household service. It's someone to do the cooking and the baking and the cleaning and the laundry for man so that the man is freed up to do whatever he does in the Lazy Boy watching TV, right? <laughs> anyway, the, I have a great story. When I was a I think I was about 14 years old, and my mom was doing enough of the laundry. And man, that, that day, that day came, and it was like, no more. <laughs> and ever since, I've done my own laundry. Just pat myself on the back. I'm just kidding. You guys like, <laughs> weirdo. Um, so it's not the help. That's not what this word means, the help, right? Would you be interested to know that the word ezer is most frequently used to describe God in the Bible? Did you know that? Ezer, that Hebrew word, is used about 20 times in the Old Testament, and 17 times it refers to God. 17 times. God is Ezer, the Ezer, right? God is Ezer, the strength and the power who comes alongside his people. According to one scholar, Alvera Mickelson, did you know that the word is never used to describe a subordinate? That's powerful. So we think of Psalm 121, 1. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my Ezer come from? And it goes on to say, my Ezer comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is, this is not do the laundry, clean the room, do the baking, or whatever we have in our mind when we think of a helper, right? This is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the maker. He is the Ezer. Some of you might know that the word, you've heard the word Ebenezer. Well, that comes from two Hebrew words, Eben and Ezer. And Eben means rock, and Ezer means help. So, uh, stone of help, right? You'll remember a story in the Bible, some of you, where God has just delivered Israel from the Philistines, and so Samuel builds an altar to the Lord, and, and, and he named it Eben-Ezer, Ebenezer, right? We read this, 1 Samuel 7. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So again, this is not about women being the help. Eve 
was strength and power in Adam's life, an incredible gift to him, not subservient to him. She comes from his side. And just, you know, the, 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 the Hebrew for, for side, we've tra- often translated rib, but if you actually translate it side, it's like it's the same word used for the side of the temple in Jerusalem. It's just the side. So it's not in front, it's not taken from the front or from behind, but from his side. What, it just shows equality and partnership in every way, total equality in co-ruling as there. So here's the idea. The idea that Adam is a leader over Eve is just not in the text. Now, I know some of us are jumping ahead to the New Testament, but just I'd encourage you not to do that right now. Just wait, <laughs> just sit in Genesis for a second. The idea that Adam is a leader over Eve is not in the text. Simply put, God never commands that Adam lead Eve. It's not there. You won't find it. Now, really quick, there are, there are two assumptions, my key word there, assumptions, made about Adam's authority over Eve. There's more than two. There's like seven, but I'm just going to deal with a couple of the big ones here. Um, I already addressed one of them earlier about Adam coming first in the created order. But I want to give two more examples of some pushback that people give and, and why some complementarians say, actually, Adam's a leader over Eve. So here's one of them. One of the pushbacks is that, is that Adam, Adam has authority over Eve because God comes to confront Adam after Adam and Eve have sinned. Now, now just work with me here. I'm, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but in the next chapter in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, um, it's a moment called the fall. So they take and they eat fruit from a tree that God had told them not to eat fruit from, and sin comes into the story. We call it the fall. If you're new to Jesus, it's called the fall. And here's what happens is, you know, actually, the serpent deceived Eve. And so Eve was the very first one to interact with this serpent. But it's interesting, complementarians say, that God actually comes and confronts Adam. Why doesn't God confront Eve, right? God comes and confronts Adam. So complementarians say, clearly, God is coming to the one in charge. Right? You, you have responsibility, Adam. Um, your wife made a mistake. So what are you going to say about that? Right? So this is, this is the idea, right? that Adam has uh, authority over Eve. And so I'd like to say that is not at all clear in the text. It's not there. The command God gave to Adam to not eat from the, from the tree, you have to, we have to remember it was given before Eve was created. Right? Do, you know that? Do you see that in the text? God comes to Adam and gives him the instructions before Eve is created. But that does not mean Adam has authority over Eve. It does mean that either he did not pass on the fullness of truth to Eve or that Eve added to God's law. Because if you'll remember in the story, I know some of you are new, but those of you who know the story, remember that Eve adds to God's command, right? Because she said, God told us not to eat from the fruit of the tree and also not to touch the tree. God never said, don't touch the tree, right? That's an addition, right? And God never said that. So maybe God is coming to Adam and challenging Adam because he had responsibility to share the fullness of truth with Eve, right? And apparently, he either didn't do a good job or he didn't do it in its fullness, right? So maybe this is a challenge to Adam. I gave you information. Did you pass along that information to your wife, right? And how well did you pass it on? 
So here's the deal. If we step back, my point is this. We're reading male authority into the text. We read it into the situation. Okay, another pushback that complementarians have is to assume that Adam has authority over Eve because Adam names Eve. Did you see that in the text, right? Adam names Eve. Adam names all the animals of the, of the, of the garden, and then he comes and he names Eve. So, complementarians will argue, is this not a picture of man's authority over his wife? All right. My first comment is that Adam's naming of animals is the process, if you'll notice the story, by which he is looking for someone like him. Take some time and read the story, but he, he cannot find anyone who is like him in the created order, right? So it's like he's searching around and he's naming them all, but none are the right name, right? None, none are the right uh, one for him. But he never finds someone like him in the entire animal kingdom, but when God gives him Eve, his naming of her is a recognition, ah, my equal. Look, there she is, my equal. Finally, he found someone who is like him, and he says this, he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, literally one who is like me. Do you see that? Naming someone and this is the second thing I want to bring up, is that naming someone does not necessarily mean you have authority over them. This is really critical. (laughs) Did you know that only a few chapters later in Genesis 16, you can go there if you want, but if not, you can just stay right where you are, but read it later on. Genesis 16, um, we hear the story of a woman named Hagar. Hagar is is Abraham and Sarah's mistreated servant, right? She's been mistreated. She has to run out into the desert, and God meets her in the desert, And she's so comforted by God. And she says this. She names God. She names him. She calls him the God who sees me. She names him. And uses Hebrew, a phrase for that. The God who sees me. But that does not mean, I don't think any of us in the room think that because Hagar named God, that Hagar has authority over God, right? No one thinks that. So the idea that Adam is a leader over Eve is just not there, at least not there explicitly in Genesis 1 to 2. God never commands that Adam lead Eve. It's not in the text. And so I agree with Andrew Bartlett, who writes this, quote, the difficulty that complementarians must address is plain. In the text, Adam is not given any instructions before the fall about leading the partnership in a God-glorifying direction or about acting in any way as head of his wife, nor do we see him leading Eve or teaching her. Again, the idea that Adam is a leader over Eve is just not there. And I really appreciate this note of caution from Bartlett. He writes this, quote, church history teaches us the need for great caution in using implications from Scripture to establish Christian doctrine. It can be hazardous to go beyond what is written. And I just want to say, North Langley, that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to not go beyond what is written. And I believe that most of the pushback that complementarians make about about this passage, it comes from implications that kind of read into the story. Now, a lot of them come from the way we read the New Testament, right? And we import those ideas from the New Testament back into Genesis. But it's, it's kind of the wrong way to do it. So we start with Genesis. We listen to the Word of God in Genesis. We don't try to impose things into the text. And then we allow God to speak, hopefully. 
So let's move to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 and the fall. So, as I mentioned earlier, Adam and Eve sin. They sin. And uh, if you're wondering who's to blame for the sin, just, you know, in the New Testament, two times Adam is blamed, two times Eve is blamed. Seems like it's a, seems like that means both, okay? So one is not more at fault than the other. And Genesis 3 describes the effect of their sin. We read God's words to Eve. He says this, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Pretty heavy. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Adam and Eve's sin has led to a curse. Now, if you have your Bible open, you can see in Genesis 3, there's all kinds of implications for the fall, for the disobedience, right? And it's led to separation from God. That's the real tragedy here, is that the sin of Adam and Eve have led to this separation between them and God. And notice that the very first time that we see an unhealthy relationship between men and women is after the fall. Can you just like jot that down or burn that in your brain? The first time we see an unhealthy relationship is after the fall, right? Your desire, he says to Eve, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now pause. Look at the word there. It's rule. We've seen that word before, right? Remember rulership? They were supposed to co-rule, the two of them. So my really in-depth image here is this, right? Co-rule. But now it's this, right? Men ruling over women. And that's after the fall. Now, man rules over the woman, and the relationship went from healthy to unhealthy, from functional to dysfunctional. Do you see that? Ben Witherington, Bible scholar, says this, quote, the author tells us that the effect of the fall is patriarchy. It was not God's original creation, order, design. Man, that's a big point, <laughs> right? And I know some of you are still like, I don't know if that's true. But so if it's true, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. This is not how God wanted creation to function. Male rule over women is a product of the fall. It's not God's plan. And, the, and just notice, at least notice, like, the text doesn't say, hey, this is a great way to live your life. Men should rule over women, right? That's not what, you don't go to the third chapter of Genesis to be like, hmm, how should we live our lives? Like, let's look at this, let's look at this chapter and see how it, how it pans out for all of us. Now, see, I think if we're listening to the scriptures, then this is part of the curse of the fall. And, and just so you know, I'm going to explain more about this in a second, but the curse needs to be healed by Jesus. That's the whole point, right? Now, about this verse in Genesis 3, New Testament scholar Craig Keener says this, quote, this verse is descriptive rather than prescriptive. A description of human fallenness is not meant to model the kingdom ideal. Now, that's important because when you read Genesis 3, it looks like God's doing this. God's going to make this happen, and God's going to make this happen, and he's imposing all this stuff. But a couple things to notice. First of all, I'm not an expert here, but in terms of the Hebrew language, it seems rather prescriptive than Sorry, it seems rather descriptive than prescriptive, right? So it's this sense of God's just saying, now this is what's going to happen to you. This is the effect of your disobedience, right? But here's, here's an important thing. If you still push back on that, notice this. 
When biblical writers go back to Genesis to describe male-female relationships, they never go back to Genesis 3.16 to describe the ideal. This is a big deal, okay? When you start to read the rest of the Bible, all the rest of it, everything, right? Do you see biblical writers going back to Genesis 3.16 and being like, yeah, 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 go back to that. That's the ideal. They don't do that. Where do they go? They go back to Genesis 1 and they talk about the image of God. They go back to Genesis 2. Jesus goes back to Genesis 2 and says, oh, male and female come together in marriage and they become one flesh, one union, right? See, all the biblical writers, when they want to know the ideal, they go to Genesis 1 and 2, not to Genesis 3. And that matters for us today, North Langley. It matters. Peter, Paul, John, none of the gospel writers go to Genesis 3. And, and, and they're not saying male rule over women is God's plan. None of them do that. And so here's the good news. The good news. Jesus came to heal us from the curse of the fall in Genesis 3. That's the whole beautiful good news that we carry as Christians. Jesus came to reverse the curse of the fall. There was a prophetic passage that talked about uh, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. In the Old Testament, Jesus comes and he bears upon his own body the curse of our sin. And he dies on a tree to set us free, to heal us, to heal us vertically between us and God, to bring salvation and life to us. And it leads to this healing um, horizontally, right? between you and I, healing between the brokenness and the fracturedness of all of our relationships. At the cross, Jesus takes all of that curse upon his own shoulders. And if you're new to Christianity, you're new to Jesus, I just hope that you see so much hope in Jesus. He's come to bring us back into God's ideal, right? Walking with God in relationship, of loving one another. He's come to heal us. It's so beautiful, and if you're on that journey, we'd love to see you at Alpha this, this January. We'd love for you to come and keep exploring more about Jesus. Now, at this point, I know, in the room here, all kinds of verses from the New Testament are flooding your mind. Don't worry, we'll get to those in the coming weeks. We'll get to 1 Corinthians 14. We'll get to 1 Timothy 2. We'll get to Ephesians 5. But we don't get there until we've listened to Genesis. And just on a personal note, I just want to tell you that this whole relational brokenness in Genesis 3, this was massive for me in my studies. Um, when I first saw this, it just blew my mind. Because all of a sudden, I, th- I saw, whoa, hold on. This beautiful partnership in Genesis 1 to 2, because of sin, has become this, right? Has become men ruling over women when men and women were called to rule together. It's not the way the Creator wanted it to be. And it's something that Jesus will heal. And so I want to just pause and ask, on this journey, week one, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And it's okay if you're not. (laughs) It's okay. I don't see a hierarchy there. Co-rulership has been stained because of sin. Are you seeing that? How we read Genesis matters. What if male authority over women is not part of the creation but as part of the fall. What if? You can, you can tell how that's huge, right? How that's a game changer. That changes everything. And I hope that this is a topic that your life groups this week are going to wrestle with together and dive into the scriptures. How we read Genesis matters. How we put the pieces together, it matters. And so to conclude, I don't see a hierarchy in Genesis. I see both men and women called to co-rule creation 
I see women as a powerful ezer in the co-ruling. That's the plan. That's the heart of God. That's one of the many things Jesus came to restore. And I believe the book of Genesis is clear that we're better when women and men are leading together. We're better when women and men are leading together. So what does this reading change for us this week? Like, what are some of the practical implications? Well, I want to ask you a question. In light of this, is there a relationship in your life where you have not been operating as equal partners? You know, maybe it's marriage, but it could also be a friendship, a colleague, right? A sibling. Is there a relationship where you have not been operating as equal partners? What healing needs to take place in that relationship? Where maybe you or someone towards you took authority over someone else in a way that brought some brokenness. And Genesis 3 started to become evident in your relationship. You know, here in a minute, our prayer team is going to come forward, and they would love to pray for you. They would love to begin to pray for you that healing would start to take place in that relationship. As we think about the brokenness we've experienced with the opposite gender, I'm wondering that in the next five weeks, I'm wondering if the Spirit of God could bring some deep healing there to that brokenness. And so will you stand with me? I'd love to pray. I'd love to pray for our church family as we begin to worship here. Right before I pray, I want to say this. A friend of mine came up to me uh, a few days ago. And he said something very insightful. And uh, I don't think he'd mind me saying, because I'm not using his name, but he said he's a complementarian. And this has, been, this has been a big deal for him to hear about our church going through this. But he said, Matthew, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna leave the church um, because we've had too much division in the church. And he said something really insightful. He said, you know, the church wasn't great at the pandemic, <laughs> right? We were all pretty divided during the pandemic. Um, and he said, what if this could be an opportunity for the Spirit of God to bring a lot of understanding, a lot of love, a lot of listening, a lot of Bible study together, and that we'd wrestle together, that we'd have loving conversation in all of our small groups, and that God would really heal us, even though we choose to see things differently. And I thought, man, that's spot on. And that's why I want to pray for us. And so will you pray with me? Lord God, as we dive into this series, Lord, I want to pray two things. First of all, I want to pray for those in the room who've experienced this brokenness, this Genesis 3 brokenness um, with the opposite gender. And God, I'm praying that your spirit would, would bring about a deep healing in their life. Come Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. And Lord, I also lift up our entire church family. And I pray that you would give us lots of love and unity that you would just wrap your arms around us as a church and that we would truly walk in so much grace for one another and that we wouldn't experience uh, division here as a church family. We thank you, we love you, and we give these five weeks to you. Amen.